Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, sorry, verse 9. We dealt with Alma last week, the Ayin Lamed Mem, and this interesting connection between vigor and the same root that also means hidden or disappeared. And now we're on verse 9. Uh, a heads up that if we move fast enough to get to verse, is it verse 9 that we're going to hit it? Now, if we, get, if we get to verse 10, we're going to go into a pretty deep but interesting grammar rabbit hole. So I like giving that heads up so you can brace yourself for the, for the, for the, for the rabbit hole. Uh, Joel, would you like to read Pasuk Tet? Vatomer la bat paro. Oops, we can't hear you. Hold on, where'd you go? Oh, go ahead. I think I, I think I had muted you by accident, pressing the wrong thing. Go ahead. Vatomer la. Vatomer la bat paro. Lechi telech. Vatomer la bat paro. Lechi etayeled aze veheni. Good. And before you translate, I will say that this is a verse where we know what the verse means. There are no hard roots, particularly um, in, in, in the verse, but some of the construction of the words are curious. So I'll give that to you if you're trying to, you're struggling with translating it, that's why. And I forgot that we always start by list, at least giving some run-up to this verse by reading very quickly the previous verse, which was Vatomerla bat paro, that the daughter of Pharaoh uh, said to her, lechi go vatelecha alma, and the young, vigorous woman, meaning Miriam, went, vatikra at eim and she called the mother of the boy. Okay, now translate verse 9. Um, so she, she said to... Um, the daughter of Pharaoh said to her, um, take the child, this child, and um, nurse him, and I will give your um, pay. And she took, and the woman uh, took the child and um, nursed her, nursed him. Good. Good. That, excellent. I want to slow that down a little bit. So, Batomer la bat paro. So, this is these are verses that keep um, beginning with parallel images, right? Batomer la bat paro. The the daughter of the Pharaoh said to her, and once again we have the daughter of Pharaoh said to her, "Heilichi." Um, okay. How did you translate "heilichi," or how do you want? To, what, what what do you think the root of "heilichi" is? What's well, la lechet and he feel no? La lechet and he feel good. So lechet means to go. He feel is causative. So you translate it as take. I don't know. Take. Okay. Is there anything about the construction of that word? I'm asking this to anybody that just seems interesting or different or or is Omer Darshani. It says drash me out. Or any way you might have expected that word to look. I know I'm leading the witness a little bit. Well, I mean. There is a word in Hebrew for takes. I mean, lakachat. So why halichi? Right. Or even if, if, if it's the standard hefil of alechet, which is not a very common usage, it would normally have been holichi. 
right? Laholich. The hey, the hey lichi is just an interesting sounding word. Even when you're, even when you lean it, it sounds weird. Um, and I, I'm, I'm laying that out now because Rashi's going to use that as, um, uh, as part of, uh, of what he's going to say. It might be about to get a lot louder here because I think there might be gardeners around, in which case I might go inside. But you tell me if at any point the background noise gets too uh, hard for you. Okay, so holichi etayeled, something like the he feel causative form of to go the boy. Which boy has it? The heini kihu li. If we break down that phrase, the root is yud nun kuf, to nurse. It's in the he feel, right? To nurse is what the baby does. To give suckle is what the mother does. So, and it's got a direct object built into it. So take the child and nurse him, right? Meaning give nurse to him, give suckle to him. Li. How are we going to handle the leak? I'm not sure you translated that when you were going through it. No, I forgot. No, for me. In for me. Right? The Lee is interesting. For me, on my behalf, I'm, I'm, I'm hiring you as my substitute. There's something about the fact that it's not just happening for the boy. The boy is the direct object. I, Bat Perot, am the indirect object. Okay? Haney Kihu Lee. Rick, you have a question or a comment while we're mid-translating? Where'd you go, Rick? Hi. Hey. Hi. The trope on Heilichi, trope drosh, if, if you were going to say, hey, what's the most important word of that sentence, that's got the rarest trope. So there's something going on there about the action of, uh, of, of her telling the handmaiden to go, the handmaiden resisting or not resisting. There's, there's some kind of tension in there. Heilichi. You know, right. So what, what Rick is referring to a pretty common trap pattern are these two kadma viazla. A little bit less common is just the kadma, and sometimes the kadma comes in front of a mapach. Sometimes it comes from a mercha. Less common than that is just the azla. And the way I learned how to lane is that when the azla is by itself, it's not sung as just the second half of a kadma viazla. It's its own trap called like beirish, right? A gay ratio, you might know that um, if you have two of them, I don't know how to put my hand right, it's a gershayim, two gay ratios. So one of them is a gay ratio. And it does have an interesting trill to it. Yeah. And it, and it ends on a Okay. So um, the, the, tr- the verse is definitely asking us to pay more attention to that verse. Okay. Nurse him on my behalf, and va'ani eten et scharech. How did you how did you handle that? I will get, um, and I will give your pay. Right, I w- I will pro- provide your wages. So- something like that. There's something about this that suggests this is not just an act of chesed that the daughter of Pharaoh is asking, but. Um, to actually pay her and really to pay the mother, who she doesn't know is the mother. Um, the woman took um, the boy, and she, assumedly here, the mother, the actual mother of Moshe, nursed her. Tova? I put my hand back down again because I wasn't sure about the comment, but it it's a little confusing in that she seems to be saying, I will give you 
your hire, I will pay you. But it's in fact the woman that to whom she's taking the child, as we know, Moses' mother, that wouldn't should be getting the pay. I don't know if there's anything in that, but yeah. Well, once again, it'd be great to have Sal here to see how he would stage this because it's hard to know what happens in the actual scene at the end of verse eight. Because the end of verse eight, well, with verse eight, the daughter of Pharaoh says to Miriam, Lechi, go. And she went, and we've got Batikra had Aim Hayelet, and she called the mother of the boy. Ah, the question right. is, does that mean that the mother of the boy came? Like, yeah. it might be that verse nine begins with Bat Paro talking to the mother of the boy who has been called. It, the Torah never says that the mother of the boy came, but it oh. does say that Miriam was dispatched to fetch her. So we might oh, feel, right. feel in that, yeah. that this, oh, yeah. that the la in the beginning of verse nine is a different addressee from the daughter of Pharaoh than the law in verse eight. The law in verse eight is she's addressing Miriam. Yeah, the law in verse nine might be that right. she's addressing, right? Because all, because it seems yeah. to be that language is directed at the one who's going to give the nurse. Yeah. Right? Right. Uh, Rick. Hi, um, I, I thought the um, the the hand the handmaid was the one that went to go get the mother. Um, I mean that that was what I tried to say last week. So anyway, I, I was going to ask about Sakharech. I was going to ask Leonard if Sakhar could also be like cover, like protect, um, because if the handmaid is in danger of uh, breaking the Pharaoh's law. Uh, that the the daughter would give the cover. I just, I don't know. That's a weird thought. So Rick is working hard, which I admire, to maintain his shot that the Telech Alma in the previous verse is not Rashi's read of Miriam became more vigorous and became an Elem when she ran, but rather one of the more adult handmaidens of um, of Dat Bapara went. Um, as far as I know, Sin Chaf Resh. Uh, has one and really only one meaning, and that is um, reward or, or or wage. If you look at um, uh, if you look at Uncleus there, Vaana I eten yat will give agrich agar in Aramaic alef gimel reish is reward. Uh, it's the way if you, when the rabbis talk about reward and punishment, um, the word is agar. So. Uh, Uncleus believes that it means um, um, reward or payment also. I don't know if there's another reading. I want to pause for a second and welcome a face I have not seen in a very long time. So wave to Robert Fiedler. Robert Fiedler, um, this, this is amazing. Robert Fiedler and his family belonged to the same shul in Orange, Connecticut that I went to in the 1970s and 80s. And he and his mother, I think your mother was one of my religious school teachers or something, um, like my Shabbat mornings were with his family. Um, and uh, it's been really a very long time since we saw each other, but he had uh, followed this on Facebook one day. And so I gave him the link and the password. He passed the test and welcome Robert to the Temple Beth um, weekly Rashi class. It is so good to see you. And so good to see that there's another person is okay. Having his hair as long as mine is right now. So <laughs> this is, this is about four and a half months now. <laughs> We're going to set a record for myself. And just so you know, my mother at 88 is still teaching Hebrew school. Oh, my God. That is amazing. Please give her my love. And really, Baruch Shall do. Ask Robert. Um, okay. Uh, Larry. Larry and then Vered. 
this is not very deep, very simple. I think that the text um, does a lot of inversions. So, for example, the uh, the text is Vitomer la bat paro, and then we have the instruction, which alter in most, I think most translations basically say, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, even though that's an inversion of the words. In the same way, at the end of the Pasuk, it says, after the Etnachta, it says, V'tikach ha'isha. So clearly, it's the Isha, which would be then the mother, and not the daughter. So it's pretty clear that the beginning, V'tomer la, is referring to the Isha, and not to the daughter. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that's the simplest shot. I think Tova's question is still an interesting one because the, 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 there's a, a kind of an ellipsis at the end of verse 8 in that the the Torah is usually pretty precise about telling you who's present in a scene. If someone is if, if someone arrives, usually we're told that they arrive, right? Almost like a Shakespearean you know, note on the side that uh, Horatio you know, walks in stage oh. left. So we can infer from the fact that the mother of the child was called that she comes, but it's interesting that we're not told that she comes. But uh, maybe you know. this 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 um, lack of specificity is throughout the first nine verses of this chapter. We commented about, about before. I mean, Rick, Rick's even used it to rush that it's not even the daughter, that's not even Moses' sister. Yeah. We don't know who's who except for Bat Paro. She's the only one we're 100% sure throughout who she is. Maybe it's almost like a joke in the, in the Torah that you don't, you're, not, you're never quite sure who is who in this scene. Interesting. Right, Bat Paro is specific. Ha'isha, Ha'alma, La is, is more generic. So, so, so that would be an interesting thing to explore. So I, I would say to that, I had not thought of that, Right, like a, like a truly curious, not not pushbacky. So what? Like what? Wh- wh- what's if we wanted to go down that route? What would that do to the scene? What does it do to the scene to have the the spotlight of specificity be on Baparo, and there being some kind of vagueness or lack of certainty about the other uh, characters? Right. You remind me us all that we had the same question about the handmaidens and which which of them were down by the by the water and which were not it's an interesting thing to linger on while we're lingering let me see what Vered and Marshall have to say then we can circle back to that Larry Vered Vakasha Rega okay Shomim Ken Shomim okay good morning everybody so um, a lot of grammar issues in Pasuk in Pasuk 9 verse 9 that continues later in Pasuk 10. And so I would like to say a few things about Hey Lechi and Hey Niki Hu, this, those two forms. So Hey Lechi, Rabbi already mentioned that if you put it in the Hefil form, it should have been Hulichi, which means you cause the boy to go, like in other words, take him. And definitely it's not the right form. But sometimes we see in the Bible, kind of in a, a poetic kind of, uh, yeah, in a poetic way that you would like the verses to sound alike. So if you say, uh, hey, Nikki, 
then you would say, hey, lichi, to sound in more like poetic way. Grammatically, it's incorrect. And, but we see examples like this. And then about the word, hey, niki, who li, so the word li, like if we translate to me, then I would like, like to add a few words as if he is my son. You will make him. You will give him the milk. You will be the mother, but you give him the milk as if I, but Paro, he is my son. Right. So that's what I like to explain about the word Lee. Beautiful. And, yeah. Right. So, so, so that, that Lee, those two letters, is a very powerful Lee in terms of the relationship that Baparo is setting up. Exactly. I love what you offered, um, Verit, about the poetry of, of when, when the Torah emerges onto the scene, wh- whoever is crafting this, whether it's the Holy One, blessed be he or she, or some um, Israelites sitting on a, on a dune somewhere, to have the Helichi have a, uh, a literative echo of Heniki, even against grammar. And what's interesting is that I don't know if that Rashi doesn't know that or just doesn't like that, because Rashi's comment will make it very clear that he, 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 he won't accept the poetry. Rashi, in some ways, like, is a little bit unromantic. He doesn't accept it when the verse just sounds nice. He wants to figure out how to, how to make it make it work exactly the way it appears without a, the license for kind of poetic expansion, right? And before we read the Rashi, look at, if you're on, in our book at the top right, Sajigaon. Sajigaon says in two words what takes Rashi more words. Rasag, um, an Egyptian commentator earlier than Rashi. Hey, Lichi, he turns it into Hine Lach. He takes the hey. You know the phrase no trikun, where we take a Hebrew word and we divide it into two words, but it doesn't necessarily mean what it was supposed to have meant? Hey can mean, like, uh, here, have this. Without, it's not even a root. It's not a shorah. It's almost like a, 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 an exclamation. Like in English, hey, like, like have or take. And lichi, not as, a, as the root, holech, ending directed toward a, fem, a, a feminine, but lach, like a, like a poetic version of lach, so a helichi would be um, take for yourself, as opposed mm-hmm. to um, the causative he feel of lalech. Rashi is going to say something similar. So let's we'll get there in a second because Marshall's hand is up. But I wanted to throw in Sadia after your comment, Vered, um, kind of they're discounting the potential poeticness, um, poetic nature of that of that word, uh, Marshall. I'm just going to add a comment, which is something that uh, Tova often does in terms of the historical or cultural background. And this is taken from the JPS uh, full commentary on the Torah. It says here, the arrangements that the daughter of Pharaoh makes follow a pattern found in Mesopotamian legal documents relating to the adoption of foundlings. These wet nurse contracts specify payment for the services of nursing and rearing the infant for a specified period. They stipulate that following weaning, the child is returned to the finder who adopts it. That the princess can personally execute such a contract accords with the relatively high social and legal position of women in ancient Egypt. She possessed rights of inheritance and disposal of property. 
and she enjoyed a fair measure of economic independence. And my own comment is here is that it is, it is the daughter of Pharaoh here who is going to be paying the wages. It doesn't say that she went to her father and said, hey, give me, give me some money to pay for this, but I have the economic means myself to pay for you to act as a wet nurse for him. Mm. Mm. Great. Thank you for that, Marshall. Um, before I ask Joel to read Rashi, if you, if you're, again, if you're in our book and you look at the Ibn Ezra, so it's two, there are two Ibn Ezra's. We've discussed this before, Ibn Ezra HaAroch and Ibn Ezra HaKatsar. If you look at the Ibn Ezra HaKatsar, so two underneath Rashi in our book, he says, Helichi, Amar HaGaon, the great sage said, who's the Gaon? Saja Gaon, the one we just read. He shtei milot, that these are two words, Helichi, velo davar nechona, that is not true. Right, so uh, I love I love the arguments on the page across the centuries. So Ibn Ezra writing in Spain in in the Middle Ages is basically telling Saja, who's been dead four hundred years, uh, uh-uh, uh, do, do not separate that word into two words. Rashi teases out a similar meaning from from that Ibn Ezra does, but um, but in a different way. So back to you, Joel, uh, on Helichi. Helichi, nit nab a. Um, so she was prophesizing, but didn't know what she was prophesizing, um, saying, um, here is yours, or, yeah, here is yours. Good. So, Saja divided the word into hey, lichi, Take for yourself. Rashi, quoting the Gemara, Masechet Sota, says, not just take for yourself, take yours. Hey, she. The she is very significant here. Take that which is yours. So Joel or someone else tease out, how is this an unintended and unknowing prophecy? Well, she, she intuited but didn't realize that it was actually her, her, her son that she was giving him to. Right. So Rashi through the Talmud opens up a possibility, which in some ways is more interesting in the storyline, but probably less accurate than Vered's read that says, if, we, if we're comfortable being uncomfortable with the word Helichi, if we are not willing to see it as a poetic use of Holichi, then we get this interesting idea that what she was saying to this woman without her knowing it is, hey, take, here is, Shalichi, that which is yours. Like, I know, but I don't even know that I know that I'm giving the child to its actual mother, right? Remember back in Breshit, all those times that Rashi read into Yaakov's statements and stances, maybe like a subconscious awareness that Yosef is still alive. Right? It was very important for, for, for uh, Rashi to have us live with the possibility that Yaakov knew that Yosef was alive. But, he didn't, but he, he didn't know that he knew. But we knew that he knew somehow. So this is that, that level of irony where the char- we, we know something the character doesn't know, right? Um, the, uh, you know, l- l- like you're, I don't know, like where, where you're, you're watching a hero of a story walk backwards in a movie and you see the cliff behind him, but he doesn't see the cliff. So you, the reader, know something about that person's reality that the, that the person doesn't know. So Rashi, the Talmud, is awakening that we know that somehow the daughter of Pharaoh knew 
but didn't know that she knew that by giving Moshe to the mother, she was actually giving Moshe to the mother. Sue? Um, the prophecy part just had me thinking about how much later in the story, there's some kind of gigantic, chiastic structure about as the Israelites were leaving, leaving Egypt, taking what was theirs. There's like some, you know, there, there was the, the, that kind of whole scene where they're looting the Egyptians and taking what's theirs before they leave the Egyptians. And there's this idea that there's a prophecy here built in to some, this future scene. I, I was just thinking about taking what's theirs. Take what's yours. That the, that, that Moshe's, Moshe's life begins with an Egyptian saying to the Israelites, take what's yours. And Moshe's departure from Egypt will be God telling the Israelites, take what you learned. Very nice. I, I wonder if that was somehow part of um, what, what drives Rashi here. Um, Joel? Well, so no one talked about the fact that Pharaoh's daughter is paying a slave. Like, he does, she doesn't have to do this. I mean, she can order her to do this. So mm. it's, it's almost like she's, yeah, she's paying her to nurse him, but actually she's paying for her silence. Don't tell anybody that you're doing this so I can raise her as, raise him as my own. Well, very good. Right. Right. Norm and Rachel. The nature of slavery in Egypt was more like being an indentured servant or a serf and not like being a chattel slave so that Slaves owned things, slaves did business, slaves bought and sold and got paid for some things that they did, even though as a community we were required to provide free service to the pharaoh or the government or even others for certain kinds of work or certain amounts of time, they still on the side were expected to find a way to support themselves. So the idea that she's going to pay a slave is really not surprising. It's a function of our understanding of slavery being based on what we're most familiar with in American history rather than what was common then. Hmm. Uh, the reason why that particular comment is interesting to me right now, um, Javi and I are a few years late watching Downton Abbey, um, and we're, we're totally into it, um, and it, it speaks to our Britophile nature and our missing the countryside of, of England. Um, but who here has seen Downton Abbey? Any of you? Bunch of you, right? So... Um, I, I, I don't give anything away when I say it's, you know, Tova is the expert. (laughs) Um, You know, the landed gentry and the the Lord who inherits this incredible manner, uh, a a hierarchy and a caste system um, having nothing to do with race whatsoever. These are all white Brits um, where it's clear that the people living on the lower floor and serving the Lord just by dint of who they were whom they were born to, they're neither sli- they're neither chattel slaves nor truly free people. They they kind of must serve this family, and yet at the same time they do have some um, life and even ability to, to 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 live, earn, and love outside of uh, of what they're doing with the family. Clearly, their experience is much more benign than our imagination about what the Israelites had in Egypt. But it's a it's a it's a it's a you're describing an in between. Um, it's particularly as we, com- we compare to the horrors of American slavery. Uh, Larry's hand was up, but then I see Tova. Tova, you want to respond directly to that point? Uh, yeah, just real 
quickly, uh, Norman was very accurate in, in describing Egypt, but actually in general, that was a more common version of slavery than the chattel slavery. We have an image of a system that was ex- very extreme. Uh, there were slaves at the same time. There were slaves, for instance, in Spain. That kind of system never developed there. They often were uh, received their freedom before their death. They often married into and totally assimilated into that society. But in Rome, in Greece, in all of those places, slavery was more what Norman described rather than the chattel slavery of the South. Yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, Larry, then Barry. Okay. Or Diana. Uh, um, this may be a little bit of a weak explanation or not really a drush. Um, the Torah is preoccupied with names, names all over the place. And in our, our history and our people are always given names, as far as I can tell. Almost never do we have a story that talks about a man. And I even went back, I quickly went back throughout Breshit, looking quickly. The only place that I could quickly find, two places, would be Eliezer, uh, the sla- the, his servant, and then the baker and the, <clears throat> the cupbearer. And, and, and also the, the Ish that Yosef meets, who directs him to Dothan. Ah, that, that Ish angel, whoever he was. <clears throat> right. But here it's really strange, because you would think this is the origin story of Moses. You would think that the story would say Amram was the man, not a certain man. That Yocheved was the mother. Not just a Levite or a daughter of Levi would do that. doesn't even mention Moses' name. We know later on in verse 10 that it was Bat Paro that gave him his name, not his mother and his father. He probably had a name. We don't even know what that name is. And that's, that's all right. I'm sure someone's commented on that. His sister plays a really important role throughout the rest of the, rest of the Torah until she dies. And she has... No name here. Now we know that, that there's names later on because in verse 18, his father, her, his father-in-law, Ruel, um, is named. So we go back to naming people from that point on. So there's something about not naming people. And only thing that I can think of right now is we don't have to know their names. In a sense, this is a generalized story. It's not a story about a particular boy and a particular mother and father and family. This is the story of the Hebrews. Maybe it's more generalized than being the story of Moses. It's the best I can come up with. But I do think that it's, I I can't prove it yet. I do think that this is a really unusual telling of a story that is not repeated anywhere else in the Torah that I can see. Even the exceptions that we mentioned are are quite different. Yeah. First of all, I I want to pull up a little bit and say the, the, the depth and interestingness of some of the impromptu drashot and sermonettes that get given by all of you as we study together. It's just amazing, right? Like some ways be- better than any perfectly crafted sermon from the Bima because it's a real, in real time, organic response to a close reading of the text, which is really what drash was meant to be, right? Sometimes the, the modern sermon, I'm not putting myself or other rabbis down in any way, is like finding something in the text that helps you say what you already wanted to say anyway, right? Whereas this is is, is sifting the text to find, you know, the pebbles of, 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 the, of, of, the, of the most minor size but that can have 
tremendous import as we think about the meaning of the text. And it only happens at a slow pace. So that's a, that's a lovely comment. Also, Larry, even Bot Perot doesn't have a name, right? She's, she's just described in her relationship. And particularly, you also may want to think of this as a Brayshit schmote um, dichotomy. Brayshit is infatuated with names, right? All of the, you know, in, in Vayetse, the origin story of each of the names of, of, of Yaakov's children um, and your, the, the exceptions that you named are exceptions that prove the rule. Whereas so far in, uh, in our sojourn through the book of Shmo, the book of Exodus, there are a lot of characters, but there's, there's very little focus on their name. And it almost seems, as you pointed out, that the name we're about to learn, Moshe, is a little bit of the a- like, like, like after effect. Because normally we, 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 norm- we learn of people's names when they're born. And now we're learning about it, you know, well into his life. So I love your notion that this is a story of the Hebrews and we're going to focus, hyper-focus on Moshe for the next th- four books of the Torah, but we're beginning namelessly, anonymously, because it could have been anyone. Diane? Yeah, so, so maybe part... I haven't forgotten you, Barry. Don't worry, but Diane's was on mic already. Go ahead. Maybe part of the effect of that is to, by taking people's names away, um, you reduce the humanity of the story in some way, and maybe this is to some extent, a magical birth story as well. Hmm. That it, by taking away the humanity, you, you mean almost like ele- elevating it to a, to, a, to, a, to a mystical level? I don't know if it elevates it, but some, I mean, if you think about all the barren women who gave birth and there, were, there was some like magical element of birth and certainly the Christian origin story is about a magical birth. And so maybe the fact that there's no names here <coughs> Sorry, um, makes it in some, some sense magical. Yeah, Im- immaculate, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Barry, Bavakasha. <coughs> so, uh, my, my comment is uh, very similar to what we have just been hearing. Um, this moment that we've been reading the last few weeks up until now, it, it's, it's a transition. It's, it's the beginning of the historical transition of our people. And it's, it's, it's written by the higher hand. And, and so these are not individuals who are actors. Rather, this is a, it's a super story. And, and so it, it's, it's purposely not clear who who the she is and uh, who the it is and who cave the who. It's it, it's the transition of this uh, baby uh, to be raised in the royal court yeah. and ultimately to become uh, the, the leader of our people. So it's um it, it, it's a super story. A super story. I love that. Thank you, Barry. Um, shall we move to verse ten? Everyone okay with that? Okay. Uh, Marshall, do you want to read for us in verse 10? Oh, we don't hear you yet, Marshall. Yeah, I had to unmute myself. Yigdal Hayelet Vatvi Ehu Levat Paro Ahila Leven Batikra Shemo Moshe. Vatomer kimin hamayim mishitihu 
Um, okay. Uh, and the boy, um, let's see. I guess the boy, the child grew. The boy grew. Uh, and she brought him to the daughter of Pharaoh. And he was, I guess, considered for her as a her son, as a son. This goes back to the, the Lee of the Haini Kihuli. Nurse him for me, but I will, but I, but I will be his, um, I will be his mother. And, and also we, to, to linger on this, this question of how we understand Scharech, Joel, I think it was you were suggesting that that he doesn't have to, he, she shouldn't have to pay. So therefore, maybe she's paying off her silence, or maybe she, it's a purchase somehow of the child itself, right? Because now she's saying, now now we're being told that that the, the baby is going to be as if it were Bat Paros. Go ahead. Okay. And she called him, his name Moses, or no, she named him Moses. And she said, and here's the or, the reason she called him Moshe. For from the water I drew him. Right. That's usually the English verb used to render Mishitihu, drew him, drew him out of the water, right? Rashi is going to have a long comment on that in both the form and the meaning of that root. <clears throat> to continue Larry's comment from before, there's still a lot of ambiguity as to who are the subjects of the, even of the verbs of this sentence, right? We can, we can guess, and we're probably right, but it's not, it's not exactly precise. By Dahayelad, we know who that is referring to, the boy, she brought him to Baparo. Assumedly, it's the mother, but it could also be, since it doesn't say, that his mother brought him, it's just a she. And she was to her a son. We assume that this means a transfer of, of, of kind of relationship from the mother to Baparo. It doesn't say it explicitly. Nor do we know uh, with a hundred percent certainty who the subject of Vatikra is, and she called him Moshe. We normally assume it's the daughter of Pharaoh. Now that the child belongs to the daughter of Pharaoh, she's the one who names him. But it, then we have to have the the strangeness of even within the Torah's own idiom, having the daughter of Pharaoh give Moshe a name whose etymology is Hebrew. Right. So. So there, there, there's a, a slight door open to suggest that the subject of Batikra is the mother who's giving over her child to Batparo, even though she wasn't the one who drew him out of the water. And going back a few verses, where there are also some reads of the story that suggest that it wasn't Batparo who drew him out of the water. It was, as Rick wants us to think of, potentially a handmaiden. So there's yet more ambiguity as to who, who are the who's um, in this verse. Uh, Larry and then Barrett, and then we'll look at the Rashi. Larry, Diane. All right. Okay. So this is me again. I looked through quickly the comment, certainly the commentators on the page, and I tried to look through quickly through uh, Sfaria. Nobody that I can see comments except for Abarbanel, and I haven't been able to translate it rapidly enough, has anything to say about the first two words. Those first two words, Vigdal Hayelet, that should be 20 verses, 20 chapters. What the hell happened? Moses, we don't even know that it's Moses. Again, it's not his name. 
this child is being raised by his mother, a Hebrew. She's teaching him. We don't know the age he goes, but it has to be after he was nursed. He must have had experiences, and we know nothing about it whatsoever, and nobody's even curious about it? I'm curious. Rick, I want you to write a, 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 one of your books about it. Yeah, what's going on here? And, and I also want to know why nobody's asking. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about my own, up till now, lack of curiosity about what happens in Vayidal Hayelet, right? What, what, what was Moshe's, what were those years actually like? Also, um, when the Torah uses Vayidal, it's sometimes hard to figure out how gadol, right? Does that mean he got to age three and he reached his upshorin? Was it his bar mitzvah? Is he joining the army? Like, h- how many years is it, is it just through the end of nursing, right? So even that is interesting for us to think about because the Torah doesn't say. It just says that he that he grew, right? Um, back in Parshat Toldot, after, you know, when Esav and Yaakov start to, Get older. By the time they vayigdulu and arimed, they're now semi-adults out there doing their own thing and fighting. Right. So is that the kind of age we're imagining him? The next time we see Moshe, which is going to be you know only one verse from now, um, he's not a toddler who just finished nursing. Right. We've we've seen changed. If we jump ahead and we'll jump back all the way to the scene where he strikes the Egyptian. Right. And to and to. Um, a little premonition as to Rashi's comment in the next verse. We've got we've got Vayigdal Hayeled in this verse. What are the first two words of the next verse, Larry? Uh, the, or not the, the, not the first two words, but the fourth and fifth words. Vayigdal uh, Moshe. Right. So we've got Vayigdal Hayeled. Then Mo, then he gets named as Moshe, and then we've got a Vayigdal Moshe. So is did, are we saying the same thing again did he grow more rashi is going to be asking that as well so rashi is curious about the doubling but not about the initial one uh, i see lots of hands uh judy vered and rick so i really like what larry said just now thank you um in the world of linguistics and language development the critical years for learning language are birth to five. And you can extrapolate from that, not just learning language, but the culture of who you are and all kinds of things. Don't ever underestimate what goes on from birth to five because it's huge. And so that is a critical period of learning where Moshe's mother taught him all that he needed to know before he went into the palace to be raised. Yeah. Great, Judy. And thank you for that. I also want to pay attention to what Robert just posted in the, in the, in the notes that we, we spent a little bit of time talking about this last week. It is very, very, very hard for us to disentangle ourselves from ourselves and to disentangle the way we were trained to read literature and to live life from a century ago, let alone three millennia ago, right? So Nechama Leibovitz, whom he quoted, who is the 20th, one of the 20th century's greatest readers and questioners and elucidators of the Torah, encourages us not to read the Torah the way we would read, you know, a Jane Austen novel, interested necessarily in the psycho- psychological development of, a, of the character the way we're interested in it, but to get to the point, and the point is that Moshe is the savior of the Jewish people, right? So 
Nechama might say back to you, Larry, the, the medieval commentators were not interested in that because the Torah didn't seem interested in it, right? Now, sometimes the medieval commentators and Midrash is, are very much interested in things that the Torah seemed to elide, right? That's, that's the source of Midrash, is to be curious about something the Torah skipped over or left out. But sometimes the, the response, even if it's an unsatisfying response, is the Torah didn't care about those years, neither do we, right? It, it's, it's a convenient response because sometimes Midrash is based all on that notion. Um, okay, uh, who did I? Who was I saying next? Vered, Vered, Rick, and then Rebecca Leonard. Okay, so <clears throat> on Pasuk Yud by Dala Yeled, we all agree that there is a lot of data missing here. But the question is, where? Why did she bring him to Bat Paro? And the answer is because she, the mother, got sick. And she wasn't able to continue taking care of the little boy, wasn't able to to feed him and take care of him. So she brought him to the daughter of Paro. And that's the reason. It's like missing a little bit information here, but that's probably the, the missing information. And then I think we will have a discussion about the name Moshe, is he an Egyptian name? Who called him Moshe? Is it an Egyptian name? Right. Did the Bat Paro, did she know Dick Duke? Did she know that that's Pa'al versus Hifil? What is it? So that was maybe an Egyptian name, but we dress this name with explanation with this word Meshitihu. We took him out, but that probably later to come. I just wanted to talk about the fact that she was sick, the mother, Yocheved, and out of choice, uh, she brought him to Bat Paro. Thank you, Vera. I, I, we talked about Bat Paro having an unintended, pro, unknowing prophecy. I, I yeah. prophesied that as you were speaking about whether or not Moshe's name is actually of Hebrew or Egyptian origin. I prophesied that Tova's hand was going to pop up, and there it did. I was, like, waiting for it. I, 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 I'm a prophet, and I know it. Um, before <laughs> we get to Tova, let's go to Rick, Rebecca Leonard, and then we'll get to Tova. And then I want to see if we can at least begin the Rashi and Mishitihu. Um, Moses was four years old because of the trope. What's the trope on the on Hayala? Oh, the Rivii. <laughs> four notes going down. Da 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 da. So he was four. That's all. Well, um, then, then in my world, he was seven because I have seven notes on my Rivii, even though it's called a Rivii. Uh, letter to Rebecca. So. Uh... Oh, sorry. I just I muted you by accident. Go ahead. You have to unmute again, uh, Leonard. There you go. JPS has a comment that I think fills in a lot of the details that are missing in the text, and it does it by not adding any text, just by looking at the translations from the Targum. And the comment is actually on the previous verse. And here's what it says, uh, talking about nursing him, nursing it. The wet nurse is termed meneket in verse 7, a word that corresponds to the Akkadian moshiniktum, one who suckles. She frequently had additional duties of tarbitum, rearing the child and acting as guardian. 
from Genesis 24:59 and 35:8, it is clear that Rebecca's Meneket was an esteemed member of the household. Her pers- her position is reflected in the rendering Meneket by Tergum Yonatan in those passages as Padgogta, from the Greek Padgogos, tutor. In the case of Moses, one can be sure that the mother nurtured his mind and character and instilled in him the values and traditions cherished by his people. Mm-hmm. Very good. And um, if you look at the, the comment that Robert just put in the post, this notion of, of, of the two growings up. So Baruch uh, Shekivanta, Robert, because Rashi is going to say something similar, that this is not a redundancy, but referring to two different ways in which a child and this child grew in physical size and in kind of spiritual or, 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 um, or um, emotional growth. Uh, Tova, and then I want to start the Rashi. <laughs> okay. Um, I assume that many of you already know, but yeah, uh, clearly Moses is a very common Egyptian uh, article in a name. It means to be born, born of. So you have the founder of the 18th dynasty, Amos, born of the moon god, Ah or Thutmose, born of, of Thoth. And interestingly, the most common name in the 19th dynasty, Ramses, Ramses is Moses, Ramoses, mm. born of Ra. Um, the thing that struck me with the Hebrew explanation of what that name means that I drew him from the river is that drawing from water is a symbolic uh, birth being born of. And so even in the Hebrew etymology of it, it seems to reflect what it means in uh, Egyptian. What a great comment, Tova. Thank you for that. Um, can, actually, I, can I just interject one thing I forgot to say? Yeah. Is that uh, the Mishitihu over here, it's the only use, it's a hapax legomena, it's the only use in the Torah of yeah. the Mem, Shin, He in the Kal form. And it's rare in the other forms as well. And uh, interestingly, it seems to be related to the word emish, although I can't, I can't quite figure out why that's true. But most scholars agree that the word emish actually comes from the same root, emish meaning last night. Yeah. Uh, Tova, your comment about the, 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 that even in the, 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 the story about what mishitihu means in Hebrew, it's related to what it probably meant in Egyptian um, particularly interesting given the fact that what Moshe is going to do later on is to help the Israelite people be given birth to by being drawn from the water, right? Right. Yeah. That the, you could, on the other side of Yam Suf, you could have called all of Israel Moshe because yeah. Moshe, haha, drew them from out of the water and that's when their lives begin. And we discussed this before that this is, you know, re- recapitulating all of ontology because this is how it's, it's you know, um, you know, um, life forms were, drew, were drawn from the water, and we all draw our, bro- our first breath from the water, from emerging from a canal, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there, there's, a, there's a lot going on here. I, I, I can't, I guess I can believe that I never once had made the connection, the etymological alliterative, alliterative connection between Moshe and, and Ramses. So thank you for that. That is truly illuminating. Let us go to, uh, oh, Renee, your hand is up. Renee, you got to learn how to... Re- Raise your digital hand, otherwise I might not see you. But go ahead. Oh, I just now, I muted you while you were unmuting yourself. Go ahead. Okay, so um, Everett Fox also agrees with Tova. He says that the traditional English Moses 
MSS is a well-attested name in ancient Egypt, meaning son of, Hmm. as in Ram Aziz, son of Ra. So it's appropriate that Pharaoh's daughter names her adopted son in this manner. And then it says that there's an irony, as in Buber and others have pointed out, that the princess in Hebrew etymology thinks the name Moshe recalls her act of pulling baby out of the Nile, but the verb form in Moshe is active, not passive. So Moshe is himself the one who will one day pull out Israel from waters of slavery and the Sea of Reeds. Right. And that active-passive uh, debate is going to be played out in Rashi. We'll, we'll certainly not get to all of it today, but it reminds me of one other layer to add on to this, which is that the daughter of Pharaoh names her child in perhaps Hebrew or, or Egyptian the exact opposite of what her father was asking every Egyptian to do. Every Egyptian was asking, was being asked to throw a child like this into the water. Moshe gets named by the daughter of that tyrant for, for her being willing to do the exact opposite of that. Right. So there is a, there is a clearly a social criticism in that name and a uh, kind of a, a built in iconoclasm and heroism in the name Moshe, which ramifies way beyond just the scene of of her and her handmaidens by the river, it speaks to the whole story of what's going on to the Jewish people right now. Tova? Uh, just responding to that, it, it comes back to the whole born of, because uh, taking out of the river was life, and it's, it's life and death, right? Uh, so it, 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 it feeds back into the whole meaning of the names and everything. Yeah, great. Marshall, you've been on hold for quite a while. Uh, this is a chunky Rashi, so we're not going to get through it all, but let's start it to uh, develop some momentum for next week. Okay. Mishiti hu, shechalite, hulishon hotza'a bilashon arami. That the, in the target we have this word shechalite, uh, which means drawing out. And here's the example it gives Kamish Chal Binta Mechalava. As one draws out, that is Shin Chet Lamed, Binta is a hair from her, from her, from milk, as one draws hair from a milk. Now it's a very weird image. This, this, the context in. Masachat uh, Brachot, where the Sega from is fascinating. If any of you had, are doing Daf Yomi, you reached this on the seventh day of the cycle this year. It's the Talmud descri- describing um, a good death, a good death with a kiss, dying with a dying with a kiss, as opposed to a a, a violent or convulsive death. That a good death is as is as soundless and and gentle and tender as just taking a hair that's on the on the you know, floating on the top of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a container of milk and just removing it. It's silent, it's easy, and then it's, and it's over. So the Talmud is rhapsodizing about a good death as opposed to a violent death, and the Rashi is probably bringing this here just because of the root, not necessarily because of the story but the, or the context, but the context is interesting, that the root there is shachal, shin chamed, shin chet lamed, which is the same root that Uncleus uses in his translation here, Although Rashi's quoting of Uncleus is slightly different than our version of Uncleus. There are many different places where Uncleus's 
actual letters are different in our version versus Rashi's. We have Shechalte, Taf Yud He at the end, whereas our version of Rashi has his quoting Unkelis without the Yud in the middle, right? So the drawing out, Hotza'ah, removal of, in the Talmud's case of a hair from milk, that's the image that kind of, maybe it actually is intentional that Rashi is saying Unkelis is, refer, is using a, ver, a verb which has an image of the most, the most gentle removal, right? In the Talmud's reference, it's removal from life to death. In our story, it's kind of removal from death to life, right? Okay, so that's uh, his rendering of the pshat. And now he goes into a grammatical, uh, t- not a tailspin, but a grammatical di- diversion. Go ahead. Okay, you'll show me free, Mishitihu means Lishon Hasirotiv. That in Hebrew language, the word Mishitihu means uh, I have removed him. Now pause for a second. I wonder if Rashi is in a tiny, tiny way a little bit alert to, the, to some of what Tobo was talking about before because he never says, when, when he is helping us understand a hard root in Hebrew and gives his other example, he never says to start that Uvalashon Ivri. It's all Hebrew, right? This is just, an, I'm going I'm to give you an easier Hebrew word reader because the word in the Torah is a harder one. But he never prefaces by saying in the Hebrew language. But now he's telling us Uvalashon Ivri in, in the Hebrew language, Mishitihu really means the Hebrew Hasirotiv, wondering if Rashi wonders if Mishitihu is not so Hebraic, right? And he, tra- he renders it Hasirotiv, I. I, I removed him, which Rashi knows is Hebrew. I just wonder if Rashi is, is a little bit curious about the, the etymology or the language origin of Mishitihu. Okay, keep going. And then, Kamo Lo Yamush, and this is from the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Um, it shall not depart. Here's this, Lo Yamush, Sefer HaTorah Mipicha. Do not let the words of Torah depart from your mouth, but you should meditate on it day and night. Which, by the way, is is the is Joshua quoting in the first chapter of Joshua Moshe's words to him. So it's interesting that Rashi brings that root here, right? That that he's bringing as a root Joshua's the the the, the person who gets the job from Moshe, the exhortation that Moshe gave to Joshua. Loya Mush, may these words not depart from your mouth. Okay, so a departure or removal, and then another. Um, Another verse? Okay, this is out of Bamidbar, chapter 14, verse 44. Lo mashu, they did not depart. Anyone know the context that, of that verse? No, I have no recollection. Okay, so context from that verse is that interesting scene, um, uh, I had it open, um, where the, the, sometimes referred to as the ma'apilim, the ones who presumptuously decided to go up to the top of the mountain and claim an audience with, with God, via apilu, they went up, you know, ag- against the rules. By the way, that phrase, ma'apilim, uh, also ended up having a very significant story in early Zionism because the ma'apilim were the ones who, against the British blockade, went up the, the coast. You know, they, 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 they against, the, against the law, they docked in the land of Israel, the, in pre-state, and they went up to the hills to try to, establish a, a residence there. They were referred to as Ma'apilim in a positive way in Zionist history, but referring to a negative scene in the Torah. Va'aron brit Adonai, but the ark, 
Aaron is not Aharon here, the Ark of the Covenant of God, Umoshe and Moses, but the Ark and Moses, Lomashu Mikerav Hamachane. They did not leave. They did not depart. They did not remove themselves from the, uh, from the encampment, meaning they kind of stayed there to defend the territory. So Rashi has brought two uses of the root mem shin, and I'm, I'm specifically saying mem shin, but it also could be mem shin hey, because it could be a two-letter root or a three-letter root, to help us understand. Um, and two contexts in which Moshe is involved, by the way, that mishitihu can be understood to be, um, as Uncle has said, shachal, to gently remove, or lahasir, to take something out. Um, and three more words, and then we'll end there because it's after the three words that Rashi makes a kind of a 90-degree turn. Keep reading, Marshall. Okay. Kach Hebrew Menachem. So did Menachem, I guess, classify or connect? Right. He connected these two words, that Marsh and Mashu. Right. Um it might be as simple as rote, like like lechaber in Hebrew. It, it, you're right. It, it, it comes from connect uh, a connection, um, but uh, it the, like the the Shulchan Aruch is the author of Yosef Karo is sometimes referred to as Hamachaber, the author. So also could just be that he wrote Menachem is Menachem ben Saruk, who is a very early philologist. We think he lived in the 10th century in Spain. He lived um, so this is you know, 100, 150 years before Rashi. And if, if, a, if, if modern Jews like us use dictionaries such as the one that Leonard brings or the classic Talmudic dictionary, the Jastro or the Brown Drivers Briggs dictionary on Hebrew uh, roots, Rashi's dictionary was the one written by Benachem Ben Saruk, right? It, it just, it, I love the image of Rashi having a dictionary by his bed, by his, by his table, looking things up when he didn't know the word. Right. And then, of course, it, it asked the question, how did Menachem ben Saruk know the word if he didn't have his own dictionary? So up until now, we've got Masha or Mash, meaning Shachal in Aramaic or Lahasir in Hebrew to draw out to remove. Um, so far, not clear if it's a two letter root or a three letter root. When we pick up the exciting action next week, we'll go deeper into Rashi's uh, grammatical exploration and then get beyond that as well. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.